Good job, Jay. Thank you so much. That was awesome. I was reminded, thinking about Jay coming to uh, read the scriptures tonight, and next week, next Sunday night, Jay is going to be baptised. So, if you have never uh, been baptised before, uh, and you would like to be, there's an opportunity for you next Sunday night. But as reminded as we were singing that song and uh, thinking about Jay as a 14-year-old boy, and I thought of myself. And uh, when I was 14, I was a rebellious young man, and uh, I decided when I was 14 that I would break the law and uh, pinch something from the shops. And I was caught. And I have wonderful parents. Some of you know my parents. They're awesome parents. My dad's been a Christian for 76 years now. And uh, yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? Um, yeah. And uh, I remember the night that that happened and he was sitting on his bed facing away from the door and my sister, my 16-year-old sister, was with him and he was sobbing. And I desperately wanted to go into my dad. Uh, and I was standing at the door and my sister looked up at me and he, she said, he doesn't want you. And at that point, there was a lie that was sown into my heart that I wasn't worth anything, that I was nothing, and that my own earthly father and probably then uh, God wouldn't want me either. And it took until um, I was 17... And I want to just say how awesome it is to see a 14-year-old young man desiring to serve and follow Jesus in his life. So I want to commend you and honour that in your life, Jay. You're an awesome young man. And it wasn't until I was 17 in, uh, when I was at Agricultural College at Gatton and I was in the Baptist Church of Gatton one Sunday morning and this, these uh, country gospel group had come for the week and we went to the church. And I thought that I couldn't be forgiven. And I just desperately looked for some meaning and wholeness and some forgiveness. And 1 John 1.9 says, If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of all of your sins and cleanse you from all the wrongdoing in your life. And it was then that I received Jesus into my life. He touched my life. I remember just crying my heart out in the back room of that Baptist church and Jesus becoming real to me. How did I know that Jesus would forgive me? Because the Bible told me so. How do I know that he is faithful to me? Because the Bible says so. If it was up to me to know that, I wouldn't know that. But he has given us a word that teaches us those truths. When we think of the Bible, and we've got this series for the next two weeks, and the Reverend Tim, and not Pastor Kai, but Reverend Tim, um, will speak next week. Uh, when we think of the Bible, and what you th when you think of the Bible, what do you think about it? Anybody? And what do you... It's a rhetorical question, Jay. I'm not asking you to answer it. He's going, me. 
Um, <laughs> uh, how do you approach it when you, when you go to read it? Some people find it hard to believe, particularly when it talks about miracles and supernatural things. And people also find it hard because of its morals and its values, because they think that they were just a part of a past era and they're not for today. I was listening to some interviews of people, what they thought of the Bible, and this is what some people have said. The Bible is archaic. It's an ancient thing. It is designed for people of the time. It's culturally, culturally relevant to its initial readers, but it culturally irrelevant to us. It is passed down by word of mouth. It is not something to be followed, but it is a great work of art, something like Shakespeare. I think it's a bit better than Shakespeare. At least it's harder, easier to understand. That's what people th say. What do you say about the Bible? I've heard Christians say that we should take the Bible literally. I've heard Christians say we shouldn't take the Bible literally. When people talk about the literalness of the Bible, I think what they're saying is you shouldn't insist that everyone believe, or what, when you shouldn't take it literally, that everyone believe and follow everything in it because there are some things that are wrong and there are some things that are right. There are some things that are good and some things that are bad. There are things that are legends and myths. And much of the Bible promotes views that we just don't believe anymore. That's what some people say. What do you say? I believe that we can have confidence in the Bible in three ways. Historically, culturally, and personally. First one, I'm just going to run through these. Hang on. Turn that on. Turn it on. Oh, it goes too quick. Historically, some people say that the accounts of the Gospels were just written so that people could have political power and that they could have control in their community. And this new sect that uh, sort of attached itself to this guy called Jesus could have uh, some political power within the Roman Empire and in, in, the, uh, in, in the Jewish culture as well. Luke, the guy who wrote that, that book, he's a doctor. And he says in chapter 1, setting, he says that he, set, he, he, well, he sets himself up to be a reliable witness of the truth of the account of the gospel. How? By analysing the accounts of eyewitnesses. Because it says in the first part, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled amongst us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the, of the word. Hey, stop playing with the buttons. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Aren't you glad, Jay, you didn't have to have that word? So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke is saying that these eyewitnesses are still living. They're still there. You can go and ask them. Go and ask them about what I'm going to write to you about. I'm going to give you an account of the life of Jesus. I'm going to tell you what's true and I'm going to prove it. We can prove it by the eyewitness accounts. Paul writes about 20 years after Jesus' death and he writes in 1 Corinthians 15, these few uh, verses, Christ died for us, our sins according to the scriptures 
that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. I won't go into the abnormally born bit tonight, but what Paul is saying is that there are these people who are still living who saw Jesus. Go and have a chat to them. They'll tell you. It's true. It's true that he rose bodily from the dead. Some people try to disprove that or try to debunk that. But Paul says, no, no, no. He rose bodily from the dead. He says it's truth, because, particularly because there are a bunch of people who are still living who saw it and who knew him and know that he rose from the dead, that he was crucified. They know it. Go and ask. You see, the Bible is God's revelation of himself to us. It's a story of how God deals with Israel, how God deals with the uh, world, how God deals in history using human people who had historical experiences. He uses the eyewitnesses, these people who witnessed and, and experienced him. The Gospels are real history relying on people's experiences. Now, when we consider human history, everybody in this room would have heard of Alexander the Great. Who hasn't heard of Alexander the Great before? Well, when we think about Alexander the Great, how do we know that he existed? Because we read history books, don't we? We read written accounts of Alexander the Great. But if we examine the accounts of Alexander the Great, a few sources were all put together, and the written record of Alexander the Great was prepared to, between two and three hundred years after Alexander the Great. But we look at them, we think, ah, that's truth, because it talks about Alexander the Great. And if it's that history book, well, it must be true. And yet, we consider the Bible written not too long after Jesus, and we think, nah, that can't be true. Our best record of Tiberius, now Tiberius was a ruler in the same time as Jesus, it, that best record that we have is around 80 years after Tiberius lived, and it's written by a guy called Tacitus. Isn't that exciting? Wouldn't you love the name Tacitus? Imagine some of the nicknames you get at school. Anyway, he wrote that about 80 years after Tiberius ruled. Paul's letters that we read here in 1 Corinthians are written from about the 20-year mark after Jesus. And um, the Gospels are written around the 30 to 60-year mark, except for the Gospel of John, which is a bit late, about 65 years after. The, the accounts of the Bible are closer to the time of Jesus than are the best sources of information for the man who ruled the world at the same time. And yet we try to discount them. In our context, you think this is boring? Who thinks this is boring? Thanks. <laughs> We're getting there. In our context, we read about North Korea about five seconds after something happens. A ballistic missile is shot into the air and falls to bits and blows up within seconds and it's on news like that. 
Something happens, well, we don't need to know that something happens to Donald Trump because he's already tweeted it. But, um, well, he has. We know that. But anything that happens in the world, we know within minutes that it's already there, don't we? But in the first century context, things or information happened a little less quickly. For we know that only 10 to 15% of the people could read at that time. And the best way of relaying information was memorising the information and passing it on exactly to other people. Passing it on intact. So memorise, pass it on, memorise, pass it on, memorise, pass it on. Do you understand? So compared to other writings of the time, the number of surviving equivalent documents of the Bible that have survived can be, can be numbered on two hands. So those things that we talk about of the history around Jesus, the documents that prove that, we can number them on this many hands. But the amount of manuscripts of the Bible, which are still being discovered today, number what they estimate between 24 and 25,000 of them written in Greek and Latin and Syriac and other so in the common languages of the time. Why did they do it in those sort of languages? So that it wouldn't be forged or frauded. But you see, we've got this small number of documents that we base all of our understanding of the time, and yet we try to push the Bible away when it's got 24 or 25,000 documents. That's amazing, isn't it? Why? So... So... These documents uh, about the Bible are so many and too many and historically accurate to be a legend. I want to prove that to you tonight. I just wanted you to know that we can have confidence in the Bible historically. If the, if the writers of the Bible were making it up and, and trying to do it as some sort of political statement and make power within their community, they wouldn't... Uh, say, talk about Jesus as trying to get out of the crucifixion in the garden. God, if this cup could pass from me, let it happen. They wouldn't let that happen because then Jesus would lack power. They wouldn't talk about women finding that the tomb was empty because it was a patriarchal society and that would lack power. So they wouldn't talk about, Jesus, or about women finding that Jesus had risen. They wouldn't do that. That wouldn't give them the position of power within their new movement. They're not legends. They tell us what really happened and we can trust the histori histori historical accuracy of the Bible. Secondly, we can have confidence in the Bible culturally. And this is really interesting if we think about this. One of the, in our society, one of the biggest objections to the Bible is that it's primitive. It's an ancient document and has no relevance it has, uh, it's primitive in its requirements of practice. That's what happens when, in our culture. Do you understand that people say those sorts of things to you? Oh, no, that's just old hat stuff. That, that is not relevant to us today. There are texts in the Bible that offend us. Do you read the Bible sometimes and you get a little bit offended? You think, oh, that's a bit hard. We write it off because we think that our culture in the West is far more superior than every other culture. We think that we've got it all together. We think that we're far more superior than everybody else. 
that we've moved on from these Bible things, these cultural things that have been written there. Do you know that the Bible might not teach the things that you think it does? Do you think that could be true? Do you think that the Bible might teach about stuff that you're not thinking about? Or you don't think it teaches what it does? In our text today, the people were, were walking from Emmaus. I, I guess they were walking. They didn't have cars. They might have been riding some donkeys. But Jesus came alongside of them, so they're probably walking to Emmaus. And um, they were discussing what they thought the Scriptures had said about the one who was to redeem Israel. And that shows me that they were thinking in their own context, in their own culture. They were thinking about redeeming Israel, not the whole world. So they were thinking about these things. And if you get a bit hold of what the Bible says... So often, rather than what we think it says, it will come alive. Sometimes we just read the Bible and we think what we think it says, but, and it's dead. But if we take the time to understand what it's really saying, it will come alive to us. I didn't think that I was forgivable when I was 17 years of age after that incident when I was 14 and other incidents. I didn't think that I was worthy. And so... It was the Holy Spirit who would take that Bible and bring it alive to me so that I could then know that I was forgivable, that Jesus said, I will forgive you if you confess your sins to me, if you put your trust in me, and I will cleanse you from all of the stuff, all the wrongdoing that has happened in your life before and even in your whole life. It took me to understand what the Bible was really saying, not what I thought it said. Do you know that you might not grasp what the Bible teaches simply because of your cultural blind spots? In verses 21, 20 to 21, the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We didn't expect that he was going to be handed over to be crucified. We expected something quite different to that. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. They had a cultural blind spot. It's very easy to read a passage in the Bible through our cultural coloured glasses and misunderstand what the meaning is. I don't know if you read, and for our German friends... um, some years ago, our Prime Minister, twice, was um, Kevin Rudd, twice, and um, two times, and uh, he couldn't make up his mind. And anyway, he was at an ABC Q&A show. There's a show on the ABC called A Question and Answer, and it does a lot of uh, uh, cultural topics and, and um, topics that are relevant. And it was on this night that he was on the panel... And they were talking about uh, uh, marriage equality. And I'm not going to open that uh, issue tonight. Um, we'll talk about that another day. Uh, but a guy got up and asked him a question. He's a pastor here in Brisbane. You may know him, Matt Prater. And he asked him a question about him changing his mind about marriage equality. And Kevin Rudd threw it back at him and says, well, what do you Christians think about it? And uh, Matt uh, expressed his his belief, and um, and then Kevin Rudd got on the offensive, and he got quite annoyed with with that view, 
and he quotes out of Ephesians 6, 5, slaves obey your masters. The, the Bible condones slavery. Why, doesn't, why can you say that it doesn't condone this other? It, it, it condones slavery. He tries to express his point of view by using a scripture. But he uses the scripture out of context. He uses the scripture out of its meaning. How many times do we take the Bible and quote something and try to use it to express something that it really means? Does the Bible condone slavery? Not in the same way as we think of slavery. I don't think Kevin had it right. Sorry, Kev. I think that it doesn't condone slavery the way we think. When we think of slavery, we think of things like children being uh, forced into sex slavery in the various countries of the world. We think of Pacific Islanders who were snatched away from their countries uh, and brought to Australia to cut cane. We think of Africans, if we understand the history around Amazing Grace and John Newton, we think that Africans were snatched away from their country and taken to America and put on the, on the uh, cotton plantations. That's what we think about slavery. But that's not what the Bible talks about in the New Testament when it talks about slavery. A slave in the New Testament could walk around dressed just the same as everybody else. He could have freedom within the community. He could make money just like everybody else. He could be successful just like everybody else. When Paul talks about slavery, he talks about people who voluntarily indenture themselves to someone else particularly if they have a debt. So if I owed Toby some money, you wish, um, <laughs> you need it. Uh, I could voluntarily indenture myself to Toby to work off the debt towards him. You understand? That's the, thing, that's the context around which slavery is thought of in the New Testament, not getting locked up in chains like we think of Africans going to America or uh, Solomon Islanders coming to Australia and being locked up and, until they did what they were supposed to do and probably never, ever released until they died. So um, if you read throughout the whole Bible and you think about slavery... God was interested in setting slaves free, not in locking them up. When Israel was caught in Egypt, what did he do? He got Moses to go and set them free because he wanted to set the slaves free and put them in the promised land. When we talk about Jesus, the Bible says that he came to set the captive free. His heart is to set people free. Not in the same way as we think about slavery. So we, what I'm trying to illustrate is we can have these cultural blind spots that we think through our own culture and we make the Bible say something completely different than what it really means. Do you understand? You think this is boring still, Dave? Oh, you're on your phone, must be. Um, <laughs> sorry, mate. <laughs> we have to be careful of our cultural blind spots. There will be cultural blind spots that someone from, uh, there it is again, uh, that someone from Germany might think their way, their way. We will have cultural blind spots that we think in our own way. Do you know that we live in a culture that thinks it's far more superior to other cultures? Do you know that? 
when you think about your cultural blind spots, in our culture we think in, with sexuality in a certain way, but if we went to the Middle East, they'd think about it in completely the opposite way. We think about forgiving our enemies, but if you went to the Middle East, they don't want to forgive their enemies, they want to kill them. See, the culture changes the way that you think about things, and we are forced into the way that our culture thinks. thinks. Do you know the Gospels of Jesus, the Bible, is countercultural? Do you know the Bible speaks against or across culture? It speaks across all cultures. And if we are true to the gospel of Jesus, it will be countercultural to the people in our society. It's hard to be a Christian and speak the gospel. It's hard to be a Christian and live the gospel. But the Bible, the gospel in which the gospels are contained, and the gospel message is, in, is the Bible, that message of the gospel, of Jesus coming to set the captive free, of bringing that forgiveness to that 17-year-old kid who couldn't forgive himself, that's countercultural. Because our society thinks differently sometimes, doesn't it? Remember that how our culture views something as right or wrong is different. It's viewed the same in the other cultures, or same or not so the same in other cultures. So why should we throw the Bible out because it offends our culture? Should we do that? When we have the high and mighty individualistic cultural attitude that we have in the West, when the church stole Aboriginal children and put them with foster children or foster families, we used the scriptures to prove what we should do. When they took uh, African slaves into America, the white people would say, slaves obey your masters. And they used the, the scripture to twist what they were trying to do. Do you understand that we think with white supremacist uh, sort of attitudes within white Australia? We do. We do. Do you know that Aboriginal homes are still being bulldozed? Last week we had people from the Aboriginal Islander Christian Fellowship here speaking with us. And Vincent was a man who lived in a bay, I forget the name of the bay, and this barge came and anchored off shore one night. The next morning it came to shore and the police and the government officials came off the barge, apprehended all the people, shoved them on the barge and burnt the village down and took them to Palm Island. That's the history. And the church was involved. Isn't that sad? So why should we throw out the Bible because it offends our culture when we have these high and mighty individualistic cultural attitudes? Does white culture know better than black culture? No. So why, does the church have, why has the church done that in the past? Why has the government done that in the past? If the Bible is really from God, it will offend you and your cultural perspective at some point because the Bible stands outside of culture and the gospel is countercultural because it points to Jesus and not to our culture. 
The Bible points to Jesus, not to the culture. And finally, we understand that we can be confident in the Bible because it affects us personally. To trust the Bible personally means that we open our hearts to a personal relationship with God. In Luke 24, uh, 32, they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while, we talk, while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? When the Bible speaks about the heart, this burning of the heart, it means the center of the whole person. When we think about the heart, it means the center of our emotions. But the Bible talks about the center of the heart, the heart being the center of the whole being, the whole person. And when it talks about the heart's burning, it says it means an uncontrollable desire for someone. Jesus met with them. He opened the Bible to them. And they had this heart burning experience. And I remember back there in 1979, 38 years ago this year, when Jesus came to me in my heart and he showed me that he would forgive me from all of the garbage in my life. And it changed me because there was this burning in my heart. Not necessarily the feeling, but the sense that there was an uncontrollable desire for Jesus that he put into me. For you see, we can be confident in the Bible because it affects us personally. The message of the Bible, the Gospels, with the Holy Spirit, changes us personally. They had a life-changing personal encounter with Jesus when he opened the scriptures to them. That's what happened to these guys on the road to Emmaus. I want to ask you, have you had a life-changing personal experience with Jesus? Have you? When you read your Bible, is it that you look for Jesus in the middle of it? He died on a cross. The people from Emmaus, who were walking to Emmaus said, but we thought that he would save us. Back in verses 20 and 21. Do you remember? He, they said, the chief priests and rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. They hoped that he would save them, but he died. Jesus says in verse 25, and he says, how foolish you are and how slow to believe. You misunderstood the scripture and he explained it to them. Christ had to suffer. And in verse 27 there, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. What he says to them is that everything in the Bible is about me. Everything points to me. Everything from Old Testament to New Testament, everything points to Jesus. You think the Bible is all about you and how you should behave and that how you should act and what blessings you're going to get. It's not about you, it's all about Jesus. Sometimes we think we read the Bible so that we can get or find the places where we can get favour with God so that we'll be okay with him. Well, if that's the case, we don't need Jesus because we'll find it out for ourselves. All you need is the rules. 
You can read the Bible with the view of how it relates to you and the rules you have to obey in order to be in favour with God or you can read it with a view that it's all about Jesus and what he has done for us. What he has done for you already, not what you have done to gain his approval. See, he goes, Jesus takes them back to Moses and he remembers the, the story to them about Moses. You know what happened to Moses? Ethan, do you remember? Well, God called Moses to go into Egypt and to release the people from Egypt because they'd been in bondage for 400 years. And the way they did it, he said, go and uh, sacrifice a lamb and take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorposts. You remember the story? And then when the angel of death would come across, he would see the blood of the lamb and that he would pass across them and that they would be saved and delivered from that death. Jesus is opening up to their minds, these people who are on the road to Emmaus. They knew the story. He's saying, I've been speaking and teaching you all of this time. I'm telling you that what Moses did was pointing to me. And we know that from our point of view, we think about that and see that. It teaches us that it points to Jesus. Go to the people in bondage and let them get them free by killing that lamb. Here on the road to Emmaus, Jesus shows himself to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, you see, so that we can have relationship with each other, but more so with him, and that we can spend eternity together. The Bible is all about Jesus. That's why their hearts burn within them. Have you had the personal experience with an encounter with Jesus that your heart burns within you? Have you? Do you know Jesus so much through the scriptures that whenever you read it, it comes alive to you and you look for Jesus in every scripture and every verse and every story for Jesus is there. It will always point us, point us to him. It's not about you. He's the only one who can satisfy. He's the only one who can fulfill eternally. He's the only one who can give us eternal purpose. He's the only one who can fulfill who we are created to be. The Bible will offend you. And if it's not offending you, then maybe you're not meeting with Jesus. Because it'll cut across your culture. It'll cut across sometimes your thoughts. It'll cut across your attitudes and your perspectives. He comes to love us so much that he wants you to be like him. And that's why it will offend you. It's essential, this Bible, in your relationship with Jesus. Yeah, we'll have growing pains. Yeah, it'll be hard. But he calls us to submit to him. Has your heart burned with you as you've opened your heart to him and his word has it are you here tonight thinking ah oh, yeah 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 we should just shut up so we can go to supper my friends god wants to do business with you tonight and he wants to show you that his bible is real historically it's it's something we need to be confident in and trust in culturally and it's something we need to be confident in and trust in personally as he did with those guys on the road to Emmaus 
He wants to speak to you tonight. Just like he did to me when I was 17 years of age. He wants to speak to you. Let's pray. Father, we have a society that has ignored you. We have a culture that tries to destroy you. We have a culture that tries to disprove your Bible that you have given us so that you might reveal yourself to us. And we have believed the lie so often. And for that we ask your forgiveness. We read the story of these guys who walk into Emmaus, Jesus, and you came beside them and you opened the scriptures to them and their hearts burned within them because your word changed them and revealed who they were. Would you do the same with us? As we open our hearts to you, dear God, with all of those feelings of unworthiness, with all of those thoughts that the Bible might even be archaic and irrelevant in our culture today, would you show us differently? When we come to you with the thoughts that we can't be forgiven because of the stuff in our lives. Would you show us that you forgive when we confess our sin? When we come to you broken and bruised and hurting, would you show us that you love to heal and to set free? In this place tonight, dear God, when we realize who you are, we realize the truth of you of knowing you is contained within a book that we call the Bible it's there would you change our lives and help us to realize that Father I pray over every person in this room tonight that you would help us to have open hearts to what you would say to us and I pray that in every open heart that you would flood every open heart with that knowledge of yourself. So that like the people on the road to Emmaus, our hearts would burn within us. That we would have that fresh personal encounter with Jesus right now in this place. Oh God. Oh God. We long to, the, to know the value and the worth of being yours. I know there are people here tonight who struggle with those sense of worth, and I still do. Because those lies try to come back to you and they try to overtake you. There are people who struggle with the brokenness and being unable to for, even to receive the forgiveness that Jesus has for them. He wants to show you his forgiveness tonight. There are people who just feel distant from God and the Bible has become the textbook and the workshop manual, if you like. He wants to make it real to you again. And there's, there may be someone here tonight who's never ever encountered Jesus at all he wants to encounter you
So, Father, would you speak to each one of us? We lay ourselves before you and we say thank you. You are so good to us. Thank you. Father, do that work. Holy Spirit, come. Touch every heart. Pray in Jesus' name. Tonight I'm asking you to stand for Jesus and to take that place where he calls us to be, to stand upon his truth, to stand upon that which the Bible says and to make our commitment to him. And I want to pray for people tonight as you respond to him in whatever way that you need to respond to him, that you would come forward and Jordan will pray with you. I will pray with you. There will be others who can pray with you that your lives will be changed from this night on and that you will be connected personally with Jesus. Amen. Please come as we sing.